1: Right, so, welcome to this Bible study on the book of um, Numbers. Book of Numbers It's supposed to cover forty years in the uh, wilderness, um, from Sinai all the way to uh, entering the Holy Land, the Promised Land. Most of the book is covering the um, the second month of the second year since they've entered the wilderness. And the last five or six months before they entered the Holy Land. And in the middle, really, we have um, some uh, chapters covering laws in one incident. Actually, a number of incidents all connected together to call the Kohorite uh, Rebellion. And we'll cover that. So, but fundamentally, it is the beginning when they're about to set out. In the end, when they're about to enter the Holy Land. And as far as the middle is concerned, very little is said. And when we my observation was that it is done this way because the 40 year that they were going to spend in the wilderness was due to rebellion they did not listen they did not trust god and told them therefore because you didn't listen and trust what i have to tell you you're going to die here and you will be blotted out and as a result scripture will not remember them will not remember them so this is fundamentally in my view why the book is structured this way it is um Consonant to the word of God that he spoke to them. We've put the book of Numbers in its overall um, context of the uh, Hexaduk, the six books, the first five books plus Joshua, the six books. And we saw that when you look at it this way, there is a chiastic structure to this whole entire organization of these six books. And a chiastic structure, a structure where you would say, I am... I am going to the store, that would be statement A, with my children, statement B. And then you reverse them. With my children, I'm going to the store. Now you might do that, so A, B, B prime, A prime, for poetic reasons. But if now you say, I'm going to the store with my children, A, B, X, which is the center of the schiastic structure, to eat ice cream, with my children, I'm going to the store. X, the center piece, is the most important element, the most important information. You lead to it and you move away from it in reverse order. That is a very common structure found in ancient writing, very common. And when you therefore put the book of Numbers in this entire context from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, and Joshua, you will find that the center of it all is the theophany when Moses is up on the mountain speaking to God that's the centerpiece of the entire book and the rest of it is really chiastic in its structure Um, and therefore this in, in implies that in order to really understand all of these books we have to take time to connect them together you can't read scripture bit by bit in a sort of siloed with a siloed or a tunnel vision and okay, what does this little passage says here? You have to understand in its overall context. And that takes time and effort, but that's what we really have to do. And I also pointed out that there is an alternation of laws and narratives. So even though there are some laws and some narratives in the book of numbers, you m- might expect that you might have a section called narrative where we tell the story, and then a section called laws where the laws are given. Instead, there's this alternation, some laws, actually some narratives, some laws, narratives and laws. And the fundamental reason why it's done so it is because it is following It is following a covenantal lawsuit. A covenantal lawsuit or covenantal agreement is one where you first have a narrative relating the, um, the glory of the strong party. Following that narrative, you have the law given to the weaker party. This is what you will do. After that uh, law, there are consequences which are part of the law. If you do this, these are the blessings you will receive. If you don't, these are the curses you will receive. And usually disclosed by, again, remembering who the strong party is and an admonition to do what is right. That's a structure you find in the book of Deuteronomy very, very strongly. You find it here in the book of Exodus. So, the book of Exodus is really part of this covenantal lawsuit that God had engaged with His people as part of what we might call divine psychology. So, God is about <clears throat> saving His children. That's what He wants to do. In order for God to save us, a couple of things have to happen. First, He needs to reveal Himself to us, because we do not know Him. On our own, because of original sin, and the effect of original sin in our lives, we rebelled against Him. So our nature, when we, were bo- when we are born... Is a nature that is rebellious to God. It is not compatible with God. That cute little baby that you're looking at is a spiritual monster. All right? Because his nature fundamentally is opposed to God and will grow in opposition to God and to the natural law if it is not corrected. Unfortunately, we do not have what it takes to correct it. So God has first to come to us and reveal himself to us. He needs to say, this is who I am. He needs to gain our trust. And he's not dealing with someone who is in a normal state. He's dealing with someone who is broken. The kid has a rebellious, wayward nature that on its own tend to sin, You know how we can speak of a resting position of a ball. You have a ball, you don't touch it, what does it do? It just sits there. Our fallen nature does not have a resting position. Our fallen nature keeps on rolling downhill. So if you don't do anything, if you don't pray, if you don't work on your virtues, if you don't try to save yourselves by by coming to Jesus... If you therefore don't do what you have, you will naturally tend to evil. And our fallen nature is so rebellious that is that it prevents us from being convinced of what I just said to you. It has us convinced we are naturally good people. It has us convinced the world is naturally filled with good people. As a result, because we have that Conviction that the world is filled with good people, we misunderstand, misinterpret God's action into the world, and we are scandalized by them. And as I've mentioned to you last time, even current events are events that we do not interpret the right way. Why? We're convinced the world is filled with good people. Now, the rich man came to Jesus and said, Good master, what did Jesus say? He rebuked him. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Well, what is the complementary st- statement to this one? If God is the only one who is good, by implication, we are not good. Right? But we read this passage in the Gospels, and we say, Whatever you say, Lord. Honey, pass me the salt. It just goes over our heads, and we don't even spend two minutes on it. But only God is good, by implication... We're not. Yeah? That's very hard. But if you can get convinced of this, you will be working against the root of all evil, pride. Pride prevents you from being convinced that what Jesus is speaking is the truth. Now, let's assume for a second, theoretically, that is, that you're convinced that what Jesus has said is the truth. Therefore, the world is filled with what? Notice, we're not saying that they are evil. We are evil because of our action. That's why it's complicated for us. We're saying they are evil out of nature. Nature, yeah? Because of the nature. It's a fallen, broken nature. Because of this, the fathers of the church have debated this quite a bit. St. Augustine addressed this. St. Thomas Aquinas also addressed this. And... The whole question was, does the fact of inheriting an evil nature merit hell? Does the fact, the fact that we inherit an evil nature, a broken nature, does that merit hell for us? Well, yes, the gospel actually has both statements being said, both on the one hand. On the one hand, and you will see this over and over, repeated multiple times. God visits the iniquity of the parents on the children down to the fourth generation. We have very specific examples. David committed the mortal sin with Bathsheba. Yes, who died? The baby. He was a baby. He died. And who said the baby will die? Nathan, the prophet. Because of what you've done, the son will, not, the baby will not live. Ooh, evil, evil God. You understand? Our, I'm I want you to be convinced that the very when Scripture says that scale fell down from the eyes of Saint Paul, it's an indication of how much blindness there is in us about the truth of God. And most of our ills and most of our sufferings, I would say 90% of our sufferings are not because God is on case, it's because of our own refusal to understand and believe. That God is good. My point right now is, my point is, again, in many ways, somebody commits a sin, who suffers? Someone who had nothing to do with the sin. Nothing. Perfect example, example, exhibit A, Jesus Christ on the cross. Completely innocent, perfectly innocent, from all our sins, he carries all of them. And if he didn't, we'd be stuck. He had to carry our sins, because we couldn't. Yeah? There is something in our nature which we all share and we pass and communicate which has been broken. And that is the curse that God imposed on Adam and Eve because of their disobedience. Understand we are family. Family. We're not just individuals. At the same time, our own actions count. So how does that work? Well, that works in the context of the salvific work of Jesus Christ. When you are baptized, particularly when you're baptized, you break away from your original family. You're now joined to the divine family of Jesus Christ. You're a new creation. And you can call upon His mercy to cover for your sins. That's the difference. But if you don't have that, the old covenant remains. And the sins of the fathers are visited on the children. Yeah. However, However, the point being just so that we can be very clear on this, the problem is that when we are born with a vitiated nature, with a broken one, what, is our, what do we tend to do? We tend to sin. And so we sin. And now we have personal sin in our souls. We have personal sins in our souls. And that's what we live with all our lives. And we call these people good. Why? Because we are deceived by what we see. Our eyes, our senses deceive us. Right. Somebody walks around, good-looking, strong, big, you know, beautiful, white smile. This and that. And the other. This is a good person. Yeah. Someone having a good life, family, kids, house, doing all the things. Check, check, check. That's a good person. We are deceived into believing that that is a definition of goodness. Yes. If the sin was the only bad thing and we were not, right? then there is no free will. The thing is that when we sin, we are making a choice. And that choice will conform us to that which we are choosing. And eventually, those who fall into hell lose their names and become very much like demons. Just as those who are in heaven and have the glory of God are very much like God. Make sense? Goes both ways we are created in the image and likeness of God as far as our faculties are concerned. Meaning that we have reason. We have an eternal soul. Those are the things that make us in the image and likeness of God. However, that image has been... um, The mirror reflecting that image has been broken. Yeah? So that's what we're living with. We're a broken image of God when we are born. And if Jesus didn't come and die on the cross, we would still be a broken image of God. And there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah? So, we live in a world where we think if somebody is living a normal life, what we consider a normal, happy life, then he's a good person. And the implication is that this person is going to heaven. Because he's a good person, right? No one in his... No one in his... um, in his, um, yeah, sane mind would say, oh, this is, a, this is a really good person. He's going to hell. Right? See how we condition ourselves? And as we condition ourselves, we condition our belief and we reduce God to what we want to believe. And now we live in a heresy. Because none of that is what Jesus said. It was the exact opposite. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you who are evil, give bread to your children when they ask you how much more you're... If you who are evil... Those are the words of our Lord in the Beatitudes. If you are evil, and your son comes and asks you for a bread, and you you don't give him a stone, how much more your Father in heaven? Right? Evil is what we are. And until we admit to that, we cannot repent. Repentance starts right there. However, why should I admit that I'm evil? If there's a guy coming to me with a gun, putting it on my head and saying, you, you know, admit you're evil, I'm not going to do it, I'm pretending to, right? What will cause me to admit that I'm evil? Only one thing. When I feel loved, even though I'm evil, and that love is so overwhelmingly strong, so powerful, that it can heal the evil in my heart, then I am joyfully and willingly admitting that I'm evil. Because now, there's a way out, right? I mean, there's reason behind this. If somebody comes and looks at me with eyes of love, so powerful that it completely overcomes the sense and the reality of evil in me. Somebody who has healing power so great that my evil looks like a drop of black ink in the sea of fresh water then I will admit that I'm evil. Yeah? That's what happened to that, um, to that um, adulteress. She was caught in the act of adultery and was brought to Jesus. Right? They wanted to stone her. And then you know the answer he gave. Let he, who, what is Jesus' implication? Everybody is a sinner. Hello? That was their problem. They thought they were better than her. You see? They thought they were better than her. And then what did he say to her? Where are those who condemn you? And then she said, they're not here, sir. And, and then he says, neither do I condemn you. Does this mean he's, he's saying to her, your sin is okay, it's not a big problem? No. Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying this precisely because her sin deserves condemnation. If, you, if, you, if we don't understand this, then we don't understand the mercy of God. It is precisely because her sins absolutely deserves condemnation, that he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and... Now that is the thing that blows us away. That last statement. How could... I mean, is he being cruel? Is he being, is he being sarcastic? Is he playing with her? Go and sin no more? How do you say this? How? Unless there's power behind those words. Unless what he says is is that's god yeah and why would she believe him because in his eyes she saw love it's the see when we see ourselves the way he sees us we're able to rise to his image of us yeah but if we sit here pretty thinking well everybody's good you know you don't have to be catholic to go to heaven you're a Buddhist, you're a Muslim, you're a Jew, you're an atheist. You can be whatever you want. You can go to it, everything's cool. We have dimmed our need of the love of Jesus for us. We make it this big. It's now become a little adjunct, a little pep talk to our life. We don't need it more than this. Why? Because we're good. So obviously when you think this way, you see what's going on in, in Japan or Indonesia or anywhere else, you go, that's a tragedy. It's horrible. Really? Logically speaking, is it really what you think it is? Take Japan. 98% people don't believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, by their choices, and by the life they lead, and by their love of material things, they're making choices. And those choices are not leading them to heaven. But we're cool with that because they have a good, prosperous economy, and they live... Good lives. They're not killing their neighbor. Therefore, they're good. Yeah. They're good to go to hell. That's what they are. But we're okay with this. Now, here comes God and says, you know what? I am now going to put an end to this. I'm going to disrupt it so much that I'm going to open your eyes to make you think about what you've created, who you are, and get you to question your lives. Now, that is not an action of a loving God, is it, now? He should rather let them all go to hell And spare us this vision. Yeah? See, it's the hardness of our heart that reacts. It's the hardness of our heart that is upset by these images. Not a true love of neighbor, because if you truly love your neighbor, what do you want your neighbor to go? That's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that counts. It's the hardness of our heart. And so God comes to us, in these covenants because he knows if he doesn't we're not going to listen god isn't setting up a covenant the way he's doing now in the book of numbers just because he really likes to be hard on people no why does he need to be harsh he needs to be harsh because otherwise we don't take him seriously we're not taking him seriously that's why he's doing it this way if you keep that in mind you can understand the book of numbers the laws some of which are very hard and you begin to understand the way of holiness, right? The way of holiness, which is radical. It's a choice of Jesus over everything else, over all else. Let me ask you this question. Suppose you came to me in confession, which you're not going to do. I'm not a priest. But let's assume for a second you come to me for confession, and you confessed that, I don't know, you are addicted to chewing gum. You can't stop chewing gum. And I ask you, do you enjoy chewing gum? And you say, yes, I actually do. I'm fighting it, but I do. And I tell you, right there on the spot, I can't give you absolution. You're going to hell, buddy. Go away. Go stop and come back. How would you feel? On the spot. I just told you this. Yeah. What do you think is going to flare in your heart? Anger. Why? Because it's contradicting the idea that... We're good. You see? If on the other hand, you were already convinced you're evil, you were deeply convinced of that truth, that you are evil, and the priest said that to you, how would you react? Yes. Help. You wouldn't be upset, because you know the truth. And then the truth will set you free. But as long as you have this grandiose idea of how great you are, and how good you are, it's stopping in the way of the union of love with God. It's preventing your growth and glory in heaven. You see that? So when somebody says something that bugs you in your day, not that it ever happens. No, it never happens, right? If on the spot you're able to train yourself to say, thank you, Jesus. I am grateful for this. Then you're starting to take the Beatitudes seriously. Because remember the end of the Beatitudes? Rejoice. If somebody comes and insults you and persecutes you in my name, rejoice. Now you're starting to take the Beatitudes. Without that rejoicing, you can say whatever you want. You're not living the Beatitudes. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. This is the book of Numbers. He knows he's dealing with a wayward generation. He wants to get them to the Holy Land. That's what He wants to do. They can't get there on their own. He's taking them there because He wants to use Israel to reach the whole world and teach them about the truth. God is loving us. He's working through Israel to reach all nations. He's doing this out of love. He knows what we need. We need strong medicine. We're the ones saying, no, God, we know it better. Let, let, let's, how about you just step aside and let us deal with it, because we're much better at it than you are. Because we're good. You see that? We're good. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Numbers. In chapters 1 through 3, there is, this overall, there is a, a structure where God first instructs them on how they're going to move. So there's a census that He causes. He wants them to, go to, sense, to create a census for war for war and the tribes that will submit to the census are all the tribes except the levites the levites are not part of the census because what does that mean they're the priest yeah they protect the yeah. tabernacle right but more fundamentally they are the ones that would be waging the greatest battle So priests are spiritual soldiers, right? Spiritual soldiers, as we ought to be. St. Paul tells us very clearly, we are not fighting flesh. Meaning, in your quest for holiness, you're not just fighting against yourself. You're not just a ball that on its own is rolling to hell. No, you're on a ball and there is... A whole team of superstar soccer players who are kicking you to hell. Those are the principalities and powers of this world. They are on your case and day and night. And they will not stop ever, as long as you live, to do everything they can to kick you this way. This is who you're fighting against. It's a spiritual battle first. Then it's a physical battle. In this order. But again, we walk around thinking everybody's good. We're good. So it's all good. Right? So our appreciation or our um, sense of the work of the devil in our lives is out of whack. Right? You have people who don't even think that the devil is even thinking about them. And you have people that think the devil is, is the cause of everything behind what's going on. So both extremes need to be avoided. Right? It's neither one nor the other. But this is what you're fighting against. So the priests are the spiritual warriors. Now today, by extension, all those, um, you know, those good Catholics who live a life of grace... You understand, when you live a life of grace, when you are in a state of grace, you, just by being in a state of grace, you, you're waging battle. Just by being in a state of grace, you don't do anything else. Just by being in a state of grace, you are waging a huge battle. So in your whole neighborhood, there may be one demon going around all the apartments in your neighborhood. And in your own house, against your house, there may be a whole legion of them. There may be thousands of them attacking you. Just you. This is the battle you're waging. Just by living in a state of grace and and growing in spiritual life. You are winning souls for God just by doing that. I have a, um, a friend who told me that Uh, while he was going through Lent, he had decided that he would give up one spoon of sugar, amongst other things. But one of the things he really liked was a cup of tea with two spoons of sugar. He just could not give up two of them. He was already doing a bunch of other things. So he reluctantly... Reluctantly, that was a battle for him, gave up one spoon of sugar. And then one day he was irritated by the fact he was not getting his two spoons of sugar. And he took the first one and took the second one. And he told me that he heard the voice of his guardian angel saying to him, You could have saved the soul. So he stopped right on his track, and then obviously thinking to himself wait a minute, who am I that I can save a soul and it was just one spoon of sugar? So he just ignored it. He ignored it. It He just said, this is silly. How could I save a soul with one spoon of sugar? It makes no sense to him. So he just went with his, and as he was walking away, he had an overwhelming sense of sadness. So he promptly turned around, went back, emptied the tea, took another one with one spoon of sugar. And he reflected on that. He said, imagine this. Imagine if... I mean, you know, neither he nor I could know if this is... Right. There is no proof to it. But the thought came to him that just one spoon of sugar, you could save the soul. No, not, it could be. But the sense that he had, uh, and I know him fairly well, it was really surprising because he's not prone to, to, to this kind of guilt. But it could be. But anyhow, the point is, even when you're living a life of grace... These little actions you do have immense weight, immense power to them. Right? And this is what God wants to show them the details. The details, the importance of the details. So, in the chapter one, he does the census, preparation for war. Now, every time there's a census, every time there's a census, either for war or for taxes, it's always part of the curse. Counting people is always part of the curse. Absolutely. Okay? Always. Even when God demands it, right? if they were doing His bidding, He would not be counting them for war. But He does. And then He tells them how they're going to line up their tents around the tent. He, he specifically indicates how they're going to be located around the holy tent, tribe by tribe. Interesting thing, if you read chapter 1, you will notice that Judah has prominence, not Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. And you remember from the study of Genesis, the firstborn has the double portion. He's the one who receives, normally he's the one who would receive the blessing. He's the one who would continue on. But as we saw in the book of Genesis, Continuously, the first one is the one who falls over and over and over again. And it is Judah, therefore, who takes prominence in the east. Dan, interestingly enough, is in the north. Now, to the ancient, the north was the abode of the devil. Because to them, every storm and everything cold and dark came from the north. So... Physically, everything located north was the, the right, the, the abode of the devil, and that's why usually when you um, do a baptism, you're supposed to turn around, and obviously now we face the door of the church. But usually, you're supposed to face north, right, To reject the devil. But now, same meaning with the door of the church, right? So he is um, set on the north. There's an interesting thing in the Book of Revelation. When St. John goes to the tribes, he does not mention the tribe of Dan. And one thought is that because the thinking has always been that the, the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. And because of what Jacob told Dan as part of the prophecy that he spoke to him. Okay, so he orders the, 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 the camp except the Levites. The Levites are going to be set aside for service. Now, here's one thing he says, which I wanted to bring to your attention from chapter 1. So I'm not going to go through all the numbers. You can read that. My point is simply to say that God is the one who comes to them and he's the one who organizes them as their Lord from the very beginning. Verse 51 in chapter 1 of the book of Numbers. Back to my point about how these statements would be shocking to us because of our false perspective. He says to them, when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. So far, so good? And if anyone else comes near. Near. Now, what does anyone else means in your mind? Okay, give me examples of everybody. Yeah, specifically... Pardon? No, no, no. no. Just Let's stay within the, 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 the tribes of Israel. A cute little girl who's six years old. Is she part of the everyone else or not? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Now keep that image of the cute little girl in your mind for a second. And let's read. And if everyone else comes near, he shall be put to death. Not, I will kill him. He shall be put to death. That is, you're going to take him and you're going to stone him. Whoa. See, why have I spoken at length about our perception of goodness? Is because we miss the boat. We are shocked. What is shocking us is our perception of goodness. Okay? We are shocked because we think this is horrible. Why? How could... God do this to, say, a cute little girl. What is implied here in our thinking? Let me show you how evil it is. In our thinking, it is implied that all this tabernacle thingy, that God is... all this contraption, right? It is not as important as a little girl. By implication, we're saying that the abode of the Shekinah, the presence of God the holy presence of God is not as important as a little girl. And that admitting that a girl or a boy or anybody else for that matter could approach God in a state of sinfulness is not an infinite injury to the name of God. Do you understand? What is God trying to teach them? They had a really hard time learning, and we still have a hard time learning. His holiness. His holiness. In the modern Catholic Church, we've been waging a very silent war against the holiness of God. And I've told you that many times. We turn our churches into theaters. People have no qualm getting up and talking to their neighbors and asking them how they're doing and how they're feeling and raising their voices and just walking around and about as if this was a salon. Right? In many, many churches, you have people going up and down to the tabernacle as if it was just a normal thing to do. Now, don't get me wrong. There isn't anything theologically wrong in having Lady being the extension of the hands of the priest. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm not... Criticizing the church for... There's nothing wrong doing this. Theologically. Pedagogically, that's what the problem is. Why? Because we think we're good. Yeah? We're not helping. Hmm. So, that's God's... And this is the tone of the book of Numbers. He shall be put to death. Why is God saying that? Because we need to understand heaven is open, yes, but at a price. At a price. That's where we have to really reflect and think and meditate on the price paid for heaven to be open. Look at us. We think we're good. This is the third week of Lent, by the way. We are in the third week of Lent. So if you haven't started yet some serious fast, you still have three weeks to go. And and don't come to me and tell me you just gave up, I don't know, some funky thing, chocolate or or coffee or something like that, okay? Don't tell me you're gonna make progress but just giving up some little things. Not gonna work this way. Okay? Not gonna work. So now if you have health issues or whatever, it's a different story. Right? But if you don't have health <laughs> issues, okay, trust that God in the season will give you what you need to really grow in His love by a wonderful and joyful fast. It needs to be a battle. Okay? You need to push yourself until it's a battle. Okay? That's how you grow in your love of Him. Anyhow, this is Lent. And most of us, as I said, don't value the love of Jesus so much, or the love of souls for that matter, that we're willing to give up things for Him. But, we, we, but we're good. We're good. good i mean if any one of us were to see ourselves the way god sees us we would fall on our knees and weep anybody anyone who would weep sometimes i pray that this happens to you you feel dry internally you have no feelings for god You, you have no pleasure in prayer you have no interest in even going to church You're irritable. You're um, somebody's trying to do something and just, you know, you're impatient. I hope that you're hit by these moments. Because this is when God, the Holy Spirit, withdraws his loving support for you and gives you a glimpse of who you are. So that you can turn around and say, Thank you, Jesus, for showing me the truth. But thank you even more that you love me. And this is the love of Jesus to someone who really is not deserving of his love. Right? Yes. No, there is a difference between the two. You're not committing any sin. You're just being tempted and resisting is hard. And you have to force yourself to pray and your mind is all over the place. You're just dryness. Right? Very different than when you are now entertaining ideas that are wrong that you're willing to get drunk or do you know crazy stuff as i'm talking about this you're just fighting the fight but there is really no pleasure for it you know. it's completely dry and you see yourself being so irritable so impatient um there is no there's there no emotion Everything is stripped bare you're still doing what you have to do but it's bare this is god's way of showing you this is who you are if i were to withhold my support from you you'd fall right where you are right there because we think we're good. We're actually ready to canonize ourselves. Right? We have the, these, these um, ideas of being canonized. That, the, the, this is where the devil you know, keeps on fanning this notion of goodness in our head. Now remember, I'm not saying this, I'm not, it's not deprecation. and I'm not putting us down so we can get depressed. It's a relation. Listen carefully what I'm saying. Listen carefully. It is in the presence of God. So therefore, there is God who holds you on eagle's wings and he carries you forward so you can see yourself the way you are. God carries you. He holds you and he's showing you the truth because without the truth, you will not be set free. But he carries you. He won't let you fall. Psalm 91. He will send angels lest your foot strike a rock. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that He's going to do that for you? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So the quicker you surrender to Him and let go of any pretense of goodness in you, the better it is. Now, you don't believe me? Okay, go read the writings of St. John Vianney. You don't have to take it. Let me take it from him. He's a saint. He's canonized. His picture is over there. And his body's incorrupt. St. John Vianney said... One day I asked God to show me myself as I truly was. St. John Vianney, right? The one who's chasing demons and having people converted and you name it. And he said, God showed me myself the way I was for a second. And had he not taken away the memory of it, I would have despaired. I will never ask him this again. St. John Vianney. is over there. You don't take it from me, take it from him. Okay. Now, those of you who think there are holier than St. John Vianney, please stand. Because I, I would really want to talk to you after. Okay. All right. So, the quicker you let go of this rebellion, this silent, s- re- stubborn rebellion that poisoned your heart, the quicker you let go of this, any notion of goodness in you, and you understand there's nothing you do that is good, that doesn't come from God. Nothing. The quicker you are on the way of conversion of healing, of repentance, and of love. That's what Lent does for us. Okay. You know, God does that to me every single time. Sometimes I'm even tempted not to prepare studies. Because I spend time, my son spends, I have 23 pages of notes on this, okay? I spend time, my son spends time, I sit down, read my notes carefully, highlight everything I want to say, and come here, and as soon as I get to this door, God takes this, throws it out of the window, and I'm talking about something I had never planned talking about when I came here. All right. Okay, this is not... All right. Let's move on. Or at least try to. The Lord spoke, by the way, in chapter 4, the Lord spoke in the tent of meeting. He's speaking to Moses in the tent of meeting. Where's the voice coming from? It's coming from the seat of mercy between the two cherubim. God's holy presence is there. You understand that? It's not an empty tent. God's holy presence is there and He speaks to Moses. What is that? It's a theophany... Preparing people for the real thing, which is behind me right now. The Eucharist. Yeah? Okay. So, you want God talking to you? Go sit in front of the Eucharist. Because now, He's substantially present, whereas there was a theophany. It was a weaker presence than what we have in our churches. That's what we're talking about. This is the holiness of God. Alright. Now, we talked a little bit about the arrangement of the camp... And one thing I will say is that the people were at a distance from the, um, from the Holy of Holies. Where were they at a distance? I mean, not from the Holy of Holies, only from the whole uh, tent, from the tabernacle. Because they needed to make room for the Levitical, Levitical encampment. The Levite were to be around the camp directly. Everybody else was away from it. That immediately suggests to you the distances that were created between God and His people. God could not be seen face to face by His people. God was not accessible to them. Why? Because they did not have the life of grace in them. Which is given us. Right? That's the difference between what they didn't have and what we have today. It's this life of grace that is given us, that enables us to be in His presence. One thing I'll say also, this I'm chapter 2 now, verse 17, is that the dismantled structures so remember you have to dismantle the structure right the whole tent you dismantle all of this and you have to carry it only the levites could do that this is something important i want you to uh, remember this so at least write it down the dismantled structure was transported by the gershonites and the Merrites, gershon, G-E-R-S-H-O-N-I-T-E-S, and Merrites, merarites gershon g e r s h o n i t e s and merarites m e r a r i t e s those are Subclan within the Levites. The vessels, the sacred vessels, including the tabernacle, with the holy presence, were carried by the Kohathites. Kohathites, K-O-H-A-T-H-I-T-E-S. Kohathites. Just remember those names because they're going to play an important role later. All right. So um, imagine you're walking, and there's a tabernacle. And there's a holy presence between the two share beams. This is the presence of God in the temple. not that impressive? All right. It's far less impressive than when we do a procession with the holy host. But we don't see it. All right. God
0: bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks... Please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.